Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm Rob Kent, as you know, the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, the story of an 11-year-old biracial boy detective who flies around on a jetpack and fights giant robot bees with his cousin, Ellicott Skullworth, also 11. Um, the story uh, was blurred by Richard Adams, a most original and amusing piece of work. Uh, when I'm uh, getting down on, on myself or in writing in general, I'll glance up. I've got the Banneker poster right there on the wall, and I'll remember that Richard Adams, uh, if no one else thought this was a pretty good book, and I think, yes. And I bring up Richard <laughs> Adams today because we're going to be talking with Kathy Appel. And if there is a writer out there that I think maybe matches um, Sir Richard Adams uh, for depictions of animal characters, it's got to be Kathy Appel. Uh, we'll talk more about that in a moment. The Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees is available as a paperback, the audiobook narrated by the ever-exquisite David Radke, and the ebook is free to download whenever you're listening to this, uh, wherever fine ebooks are sold. So if you're curious, you watch or listen to the show and you want to say, can that middle grade ninja fella write, go get a free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees and find out. Uh, under the super secret pen name Robert Kent, I've written some uh, horror novels, including my young adult novel, uh, All Together Now, A Zombie Story. And we're going to be talking about Kathy Appelt's uh, young adult novel today. So I'm wearing my, my young adult uh, shirt. <laughs> I've also written uh, All Right Now, A Short Zombie Story, All the Zombies You Could Handle. There is a warning uh, at the front of All Together Now, A Zombie Story that nobody ever takes seriously. In which I tell you flat out that this is a very violent story with no profanity and, and very minimal sexual content, uh, but a lot of violence and people don't take that serious. And then I get emails from them and I said, well, now I thought you were the middle grade ninja guy. I thought I was getting into a nice story and, and that wouldn't really turn nasty on me. Take that warning serious. Uh, and then also the Book of David, uh, which is an even nastier story with lots of profanity is available. Uh, and this one also has some religious content. We're going to talk a little bit about religion and even maybe some politics today. Um, and this is the books uh, in which I uh, discuss both religion and politics. It's five chapters, five volumes of the Book of David. It's a Stephen King-esque uh, novel about a haunted house featuring flying saucers. So right away, you know whether that's uh, for you or not. If you're a little bit on the fence, the first part of this five-volume uh, horror novel Chapter one of the Book of David is available to download free as an audiobook whenever you're listening to this, wherever fine audiobooks or fine ebooks are sold. Uh, and if you look real close, if you buy the paperbacks, you get this little message here Jesus wants to give you eternal life. What that, what's that about? You have to get the books and find out. Um, today is going to be our uh, sort of mid season uh, finale. Uh, my son is going to be on spring break the next couple of weeks, and we record this uh, show in the afternoons when he's at school. Uh, so during spring break, I'm going to use that time to catch up on some deadlines. So don't think the show has gone anywhere. We'll be back in April. Uh, I'll be talking with the author Jessica Lawson, uh, literary agent Holly Root, uh, and the editor Allison Weiss. So fantastic shows coming up here in April. Uh, and we've got a bunch of other guests that haven't confirmed specific dates yet, but will probably be along as well. Uh, I had a great weekend. I went and I met uh, last week's guest, Lamar Giles, at RosieCon here in Indiana. 
Uh, so I want to, it was the first ever uh, RosieCon named after, uh, God bless you, Mr. Rosewater, one of my favorite Kurt Vonnegut novels. Uh, if you're in Indiana, you have to love Kurt Vonnegut. That's the law. Uh, and it was an absolute success. We had 25 amazing young adult authors come to our town and talk with us. Um, I, of course, approached each of them, and probably they will, uh, they'll be uh, on the podcast at one point or another. Uh, so look forward to seeing some of those folks. Uh, Lamar Giles and I got along famously. I thought during our podcast conversation we could be friends in real life. As of Saturday, we were giving each other a, a, a manly bro hug uh, on our way out. I'm looking forward to seeing him again. Uh, today, we are going to talk with the one and only Kathy Appelt. I am honored and thrilled to chat with you. Kathy, how are you today? I'm good. Thanks. I'm so glad to be here with you and so happy to be following Lamar Giles. I'm a fan of his work. So um, that makes me happy to to think that I'm right behind him. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, he was uh, an amazing author, but you are an amazing author. Uh, Lamar Giles was, uh, his eyes got kind of big when I told him on uh, uh, over the weekend that, well, yeah, on Monday I've been chat with uh, Kathy Appel. He's like, really? Oh, yeah. That uh, won me uh, a lot of... Uh, a lot of uh, misdirected praise uh, <laughs> at the uh, RosieCon. I was like, no, 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 I, I just provide the platform. It's Kathy Apple's going to be there. So tell uh, for the ignorant out there that are watching or listening, uh, give us kind of an overview of your background and some of the books that you've written. Okay, well, like you, um, I write across the board. You know, I write for middle grade and young adult. Um, I also write for very young kids. Um, I have baby books, you know, the little hardback, the little cardboard ones, you know, the kind that babies chew on. <laughs> I have some of those. And then I have a lot of picture books. In fact, I started out um, in this field as a picture book writer. So and it as as it so happens with a lot of people, as my kids got older, my writing tended to get, you know, older. So. Um, so, yeah, so I write all across all across the <laughs> the realm of children's books. So yeah, yeah, and that's, you know, I started, I started writing when I was six years old, I, I think, and, um, and so it's always been a part of my life. So I feel really fortunate to get to write for kids. Well, I feel that we're all very fortunate that you're, uh, <laughs> that you're writing for kids and for the rest of us. Okay. You've, you're a Newbery Honor um, recipient. You've uh, been nominated for the National Book Award, multiple other awards and Amazon, uh, number one book uh, mentioned. Uh, you're a New York Times bestselling author. You have so much to teach us. So obviously the first question I have for you is, Kathy Appel, have you ever seen a flying saucer? <laughs> That's a great question. No, but I do intend to before I die. <laughs> so you're uh, you're a believer. You think they're flying up around up there? Absolutely. I mean, the universe is so huge. It's I think I think it's very unlikely that we're the only living creatures in in the in the solar system. So um, so yeah, I wouldn't be surprised at all. I will uh, send you some literature that you will you you'll feel uh, obliged to not uh, <laughs> <laughs> to not read. I am 100% convinced that not only are we not alone but there are some uh, that are visiting us already uh, if well, not from space from somewhere. Uh, but that's the uh, subject of, a, of of the book of David uh, <laughs> and uh, and other things. Um, what I wanted to well, I've got so many questions for you but I first wanted to thank you because you taught me 
maybe one of the most valuable lessons I've ever learned about being an author. Uh, about six years ago, what I remember, because my wife was uh, very pregnant uh, with our son, uh, you came to a Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators conference uh, in Fort Wayne. Uh, and I was walking around with my name tag on, and I'm, I'm sure it said Rob Kent. I, I'm sure I scribbled under it, middle grade ninja, because that's just how I roll. I wear t-shirts with, with my name on them, and if, it, if I'm not wearing one with my name on it, I make sure it gets on there. Uh, and you saw me, and you had just a, a crowd of adoring fans around you, as I imagine you have any time you go to a conference. Um, but you had plenty of people that, that wanted to shake your hand, and you saw me, and you made a point to, to cross the room and thank me. I had uh, reviewed the underneath on, on middlegradeninja.com, and you faced uh, seven questions. That interview, of course, is still available. I'll link to it in the show notes. Um, but you thanked me, and, and I remember, uh, one, just absolutely being thrilled, like, oh, my gosh, the, the, the sun is shining on me in this moment, <laughs> Kathy Appelt is taking time to thank me. But then in the intervening years, I've thought about sort of the absurdity of that because for, for God's sake, the underneath is, uh, is doesn't need me to sign off and say it's a good book. The underneath is, is pretty widely acknowledged to be a classic of, of children's literature. And I've always thought that that's what a successful author does. That's that's the difference between a successful author and, and everybody else. One of the things, now obviously, you still have to write amazing books, but you've done that. Um, but after that, the because I, I imagine maybe maybe it was just that one day, and you're you're a jerk to everybody else you ever encounter, <laughs> but I don't think so. I think I think that's a part of what makes Kathy Appelt Kathy Appelt is is going out of your way to acknowledge people. Um, and that has taught me a lot about the sort of author I want to be out and about in the world. Not a question on there, just a thank you and an acknowledgement that that's, that's who you are. Well, um, gosh, thank you. Thank you for reminding me of that. Um, as you were talking to me, I, well, first of all, I just want to say that I feel like practicing gratitude is a huge part of being an author. You know, like I, you know, I try to remember every day to be grateful for what I do and for what I'm able to do and, you know, grateful for my desk and grateful for my cup of coffee and all of that. You know, I think gratitude um, can get you a far, very far way down the road. But I do want to mention that um, I had a similar experience years ago when I was just starting out. Um, I was at the Texas Library Association Conference here in Texas and you probably know that's a huge conference. I mean, it's it's a major um, conference every year, and I I had only been a couple of times. I think I think my first or or maybe my second book had just come out, and so um, every year there's this huge um, publishers party where all the publishers get together and they have like a meet and greet, and it's a major cocktail party and and all of this and. Um, um, my my husband and my both of my boys were with me, and they were the boys were probably, I want to say twelve and ten, something like that. Um, so, and they were just popping in, and then my husband was going to take them, you know, for dinner while I did my meet and greet, my shake, my handshaking, and all that. Well, there was an author in the room who was, you know, really well known author. It was Gary Paulson, and at the time. Um, Hatchet was a huge, I mean, it's still a major, major book in our, you know, in the, in the, uh, in children's letters. And, and he's just a great guy. Anyway, he was just surrounded by people, you know, just 
you know, <laughs> kind of holding court. And, um, and, but as soon as he saw my boys, he, he broke off what he was, was, you know, he broke off with the crowd that was surrounding him, his adoring fans. And he made a beeline for my boys, you know, and just welcomed them, talked to them about what they were doing and, um, you know, what they were reading and all of that. And as it turned out, my older son had just read Hatchet. And so they got into a discussion. And I just remember thinking, um, you know, he didn't have to do that. He, he had, you know, he was holding forth. There were tons of people surrounding him. And he made a point of greeting my two boys, you know, as if they were the two most important people in the room. And I, and I think maybe he thought that, you know, maybe he felt that, that they were, that they were the most important. And that meant so much to me. And to witness that act of, um, of uh, generosity, you know, to, to those kids, to my kids, just meant the world to me. And so I've, you know, you're bringing this up reminds me of that. So I, you know, I hope that every act like that generates another act. Um, so, so there yeah, you I hope so it. too. The uh, <laughs> world of authors will be made better one, uh, one incredible author moment at a time, hopefully. <laughs> Yeah, and it doesn't take that much, does it? It's just a kind of being aware of where you are and who you are and who you're with and all of that. So, yeah. Yeah, thanks yeah, for reminding me. I think it was a two or three day conference. I, I, I sat in on a couple of your panel discussions. Yeah. I asked you some other questions. Um, but it was just um, that one moment. That was maybe two, two, three moments. And here we are six years later. I, I always mm -hmm. think of that. And I, I bought other books of yours uh, that I maybe wouldn't have bought because God knows I've, I've always got plenty of books to read. <laughs> right. Um, despite my love for the underneath that I got buried under the blog forever. Um, <laughs> But I always remember Kathy Apple. That's the kind of author that uh, I want to be if I'm out and about in the world. I want to make sure that I make the the uh, day not so much about me, but about all the writers that have come out uh, and are are, are uh, eager to uh, hopefully one day um, meet me and, and, and shake my hand. Although if I'm standing next to either you or Gary Polson, there, there's no chance. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. You know, at the end of the day or at the beginning of the day too, um, the act of writing or any other kind of creative art, whether it's drawing or music or whatever, is to a large extent very solo. You know, it's very, and 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 it's very egocentric, you know, I mean, it, it just is just by its nature, you, you know, you have to involve your whole self. And lately, <laughs> I have to say, trying to, to launch Angel Thieves has made me feel like every day is all about me. And, um, and so, you know, so it's good to, it's good to remember that there's, there are other people out there in the world. <laughs> so, yeah, thank you for reminding me of that. The act of publishing a book is a little bit egomaniacal, uh, yes. just because, you know, uh, Gary Polson and, and Kathy Appelt already exist in the world. <laughs> Why am I publishing Banneker Bones if there's any chance that somebody might accidentally read that and they haven't read Angel Thieves or The Underneath or The Keeper or any of your books first? Mistake. Re read those books. And if there's time left over, come back and, and check out Banneker. So no, that's, I, uh, I, uh, say that. I, I feel like, you know, I think that I wouldn't say that. I think uh, Banneker Bones is just the right book for just the right reader at just the right time. You know, I think we all encounter books um, when we need them. And so, um, yeah, so Banneker Bones, I'm sure, is making its way and changing lives, you know. Well, at least mine. 
<laughs> uh, maybe one or one or two others. Right. Um, so I wrote a long list of questions to make sure I kept myself on task because <laughs> I know that I have this um, uh, this tendency to gush. Uh, and I, I don't want to spend the, our whole conversation gushing and telling you that I think you're wonderful. You know, I think you're wonderful. Let's talk about your new wonderful book, Angel Thieves. Okay. Um, so if you would just give esteemed audience kind of uh, uh, a brief summary of, of what Angel Thieves is available now, uh, wherever fine books are sold. Uh, what is Angel Thieves uh, all about? Well, it's it's got two major storylines. Um, there's one in what I call real time, which is current day, you know, today. Um, and then there's a another story that, that I've, called dream time. So there's the current time and then there's the real time, current time, and then there's the dream time, which is the, the older story. And um, they're, they're both set along the Buffalo Bio, which is the main artery, the main water waterway in Houston, which is where I grew up, and Buffalo Bio. And um, so the real time story is about a boy and his father who um, are engaged in the nefarious uh, trade of stealing graveyard angels and they do it for the black market and they do it, you know, as it's not like an everyday thing that they do, but they do it to, um, you know, to get by, to, to subsidize their income. And, um, and so, uh, so that's the, that's the real time story, the main premise of the real time story. And then there is a, in the in the older story, it's set in pre-Civil War Houston, and it's it's about a slave, a woman who was enslaved, and when her master died, he set her free, but he did not set her children free, and so she's doing the only thing she knows to do, and that is grab her little daughters. She has two little daughters, and um, and run to to escape, and um, and part of I mean there's there are a number of reasons that I wrote. I wrote this, that older story. And one of them is that I have a relative, I mean, my, my ancestors came to Houston right from the beginning. It was, it was, Houston was not established until 1836. And so it's a relatively young city as, as far as that goes. I mean, there were people there, of course, before, before the Allen brothers moved in, but um, they were the, the original uh, settlers, but, um, so I really wanted to know, you know, I was really, I wanted to find out what, what it was like for my own relatives to be there um, in the 1830s before the Civil War. And, and, and when Texas was actually a country, it was a republic. It wasn't part of the United States yet. So, um, so there, there was that. And then on the real time side of it, I had this experience of going to a funeral with my grandmother and she was one of seven children. And, um, and it was, it was a graveside service. It was for her brother. And it was held at this old, old cemetery in Houston called the Washington cemetery. And I have lots of relatives buried there. So it was a cold rainy day. And as we were driving out, um, <laughs> Um, I kept I kept looking around at the monuments and and I realized something was really off. I couldn't quite put my finger on it, and so I asked my grandmother if we could drive back through 
And she was like, sure, sure. So we drove back through. And I real what I realized is that all of the angels had their heads cut off. I mean, they were all decapitated. And, um, and it was such a freakish, you know, experience. I, I, I looked every angel that I saw at any rate was headless. And so it was so unsettling that a few weeks later, I asked my husband to go down to Houston. He was a photographer at the time and take photos of the angels without their heads. And, and that experience led me to investigate the black market in stolen cemetery statuary. And, you know, uh, grave robbing has been around. Some, some people say it's the second oldest profession, um, <laughs> you know, for forever. So, so it's not like it's uncommon, but it was, so I just, you know, I kept thinking, what would it be like, you know, to live that life? But the, the thing that really, um, the real, that made me really wonder about it is that, is that here in Texas, and I know in Indiana too, um, religion is just a part of the fabric of life here. And, um, and, and so I asked the question, what would it be like if a boy with a really big secret started falling for a girl who is very tied to her church, very religious, very open, very, you know, very sweet in her faith. I, and, and, because I know these kids, they're, they're all around, you know, they're, they're, I call them sweet believers because that's just the way they roll. I mean, they, you know, they're, they're shaped, their worldview is shaped by their beliefs, by their religion. And so, so I thought that could be an interesting, you know, an interesting possibility to have a, to have a, a you know, a, a fledgling romance when there's this huge secret, um, that it has to come out eventually, right? <laughs> so, so yeah, so that's kind of, that's a little bit of the backstory. So there's the two, you know, the twin stories going back and forth. So, yeah. There's a lot of metaphors about who, who are the actual angels and who, who are the ones that are uh, uh, doing the thieving. Exactly, because Axa, um, she's the slave, the woman who was enslaved. I named her Axa. And um, I had I had a great great grandmother named Axa, so I gave her that name. I love that name. Um, so yeah, she's taken her daughters, and at that time in Texas, it was it, she would be considered a pirate. You know, to to take her very own daughters and run, even though she was free, she was essentially stealing her baby daughters, and for that, you know, she could suffer the death penalty in Texas at that time. So, so that was the question, you know, who's, who's the thief, who's, who are the angels? So, yeah, so I, you know, I, I toyed with that, that question throughout the whole writing of the story. Yeah. Yeah. I've got so many questions for you about the book. I uh, uh, finished it early this morning. Um, and, and last night I was, I was crying a little bit and I said, this time, Kat, Kathy, I not going to get me. <laughs> I cried previously, but not this time. Nope. Oh. <laughs> so steal yourselves, oh. uh, esteemed oh. audience. When you go out and you get yourself a copy of angel thieves, uh, you will laugh. There are plenty of, of, of wonderful and, and, and fun moments throughout the story. Uh, but you, you're probably also going to maybe bust a tear a little bit or, or, or you're not human and, and you should have yourself checked. 
<laughs> one of those two things. So a question I had for you uh, specifically about Angel Thieves uh, is you said that you had originally written that draft in about six weeks, uh, mm -hmm. but then it took three years before the book was 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 ready and uh, and, and and ready to be published, right? right. So my, my first question is what uh, what happened between those six weeks and the rest of the time before the book was ready? <laughs> okay, that was a lot of weeks, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I, I did the math. It was 150 weeks uh, was the was the difference. Oh, man, it seems longer than that to me. <laughs> um, you're right. I mean, the book came to me very quickly. And I think largely because I had been I had been toying with these ideas for a long time. It's not like I had just like one morning woke up and and thought, what would it be like, you know, to steal graveyard angels? Because I, I mean, that was something that ha the original moment with my grandmother happened back in the 90s. So I've been kind of carrying that notion around with me for a while. So and and the same with um, AXA, because I had read a, an, a tiny article online about a woman in Houston named Sylvia Roth, who had that experience. She was a slave. And when her master died, he set her free, but he put their, their children in custody or guardianship of a fellow slaveholder. And so that was largely based on a real, a real story. So it's like, you know, I had these kind of stories going back and forth in my head already. So the, the initial draft was, was pretty quick. You know, I read, I wrote it pretty quick and it was, it was, it was short. You know, it, it really was a, a working draft. You know, I can't say that it was complete by any stretch of the imagination. But then a number of things had to happen. You know, I really had to do quite a bit of research to, you know, to be able to set the novel correctly in time. Um, you know, it, it did. The backstory happened in the in, in, in 1846 was just before Texas joined the Union. And um and so I needed to make sure that my dates were working, um, especially in conjunction with the Trail of Tears. So they were almost a little concurrent. The, the Texas War for Independence against Mexico and the Trail of Tears happened pretty much at the same time. So, um, so I need to be sure that was all in place. But the other thing that I absolutely had to do was get readers. You know, I because I was writing outside of my lane. You know, I had a an African American. Uh, slave as a as a primary character, and so I, you know, I had to I had to hire a, or I I just needed to hire a um, professional reader for that for that story to make sure that I was not, um, you know, counting on stereotypes or misportraying, um, you know, who she was and all of that. So, and same with I have I have a Native American character in the book as well. And so I hired a, um, um, a professional reader for that character, too, for the Native American. And, and, you know, it's not as easy as just saying, oh, well, I, I can just hire a Native American. No, I, you know, I needed to find somebody who was in that nation, the Cherokee Nation, um, or I felt that I did. You know, I had I really I really wanted to take care with this novel to be sure that, you know, that that I was um, not misrepresenting anybody or per perpetrating, uh, per perpetuating a stereotype or, 
something like that. And so it's really, really important to me to get that right. And um, um, so, so, and and also, I had to I had to have a reader for the theology of the book because even though it's not, you know, I don't really get into theological issues in a major way with the book. I still have this character who is deeply grounded in her religion and the church too. The church itself is like a character. And so I had to be sure that, you know, that that also was in place. And so it was just a lot of, first of all, expanding the story, you know, in a way that it could accommodate the various storylines, but also just, you know, taking care with them to be sure that, um, you know, that I was being careful and that I was being astute and being um, humble in the face of um, the characters that, you know, that are not in my, you know, my own um, background or, or, you know, milieu. So, um, so, so, you know, I, I think it was important to let the story unfold in its own time. Um, and it's not like I worked on it every single day, but, but I have to say the story taught me a lot. You know, I, I, I was surprised at some of my own um, assumptions that were, that I was mistaken about. And, and so, so I just wanted to be sure that I took care. And so I, and, and as a result, it just, it just took another 150 weeks. And honestly, if I had two more weeks, I'd probably change some of it. <laughs> of <course>. <laughs> <laughs> my, my editor was like, Kathy, let go. It's like we were tugging on it. You know, she's like, let go. We've got to get this, we've got to get this thing to the printer. So, <laughs> So yeah, yeah, but that's true of all of my books. You know, I read them and I'm like, oh man, I'd like to go in and change that. <laughs> I'm sure you have that experience too. Oh, of course, yeah. yeah. I I, I uh, try not to read my old books um, right. <laughs> just because I'll I'll, I'll want to go through them. Well, now I know more. <laughs> let me let me change this. Um, right. right, exactly. But that, I mean, that makes sense. It, it requires a certain amount of courage, especially uh, in, uh, to, I mean, it always requires courage to write just full stop. Um, but uh, especially in the current market, uh, mm -hmm. as a white woman from Texas writing from the, the perspective of these characters, right. um, it, I think it speaks volumes about the, uh, about the time that we're living in when I thought, oh, Look, look at Kathy definitely uh, maneuvering this uh, and, 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 and silencing uh, savage YA Twitter. Uh, it's, it's not going to be an issue because, because you did do the, the homework and you, you presented characters um, that, to the best of my knowledge, are 100% accurate and feel authentic as you're reading them. But it also occurred to me that in addition to those uh, characters, you're writing from, uh, was it Zora? Uh, the uh, young ocelots perspective, mm. <laughs> and, and and I can't imagine young adult Twitter. I don't think there are any ocelots on Twitter <laughs> saying you didn't get the ocelot experience <laughs> correct. Right. Well, um, you know, in, in, I mean, I never forgot. I mean, I I'm tuned into Twitter. I would be lying if I said I wasn't. And um, you know, I I appreciate the argument. I really do. I I feel like it made me more careful, and. Uh, you know, I think it's an important argument. I mean, I, I, it's more than an argument, really. It's it's a major discussion, and um, it is a little on the terrifying side. I never once, for not one minute, forgot that I was a white, middle-aged woman who, well, now not even middle-aged. I'm a senior citizen now, but um, 
um, you know, I never, ever forgot that, you know, who I was in the writing of this, um, uh, you know, as a white privileged woman who, um, who is writing these characters. I, I, you know, I think that was never, ever outside of my mind while I was writing it. And, and I say that not because I felt like it gave me a right to write those characters. It, it didn't, it absolutely didn't give me any rights at all. Um, what it did was make me truly, truly want to get it right. And, um, that's my hope, you know, that's my hope that, and I, you know, I had lots of help. Um, I had, you know, great readers, um, and, and even my critique group and, and other readers who, who encouraged me. And, you know, I, I mean, it was, I have to say really scary and it still, it continues to be scary because, um, you know, my readers could only get me so far you know, and, um, they, you know, they did what they could. The rest is my responsibility. And so hopefully I did get it right, but if I didn't, it was totally on me. And, um, and so, you know, I'm very, and, and my publisher, my editor couldn't have been more supportive as, as I was working on this story. So, um, I love my characters and with um, AXA particularly, um, no, I'm not a black woman. No, I've never been enslaved. I know what it's like to be discriminated against, you know, as a woman, just as a woman. Um, I've had that experience. So I do know that, but I also know what it is to be a mother. And when I read that story about the real person in Houston who was set free, but her children weren't, my heart broke. I just thought, how, how can you be free if your children aren't, you know, I mean, that's, that, it seems like it would be an impossibility because she could have saved herself. You know, she could have just saved herself and walked away, but um, she didn't. And so, um, so I could really, um, you know, identify with that, that aspect of her. And also, you know, just the fact that I, my family has been in Houston for generations. You know, I'm like a seventh or eighth generation Houstonian. So, um, so in some ways the story is a tribute to my hometown. So, um, so there's that too, but, um, yeah. So, you know, I never, I never take for granted anything. So I, I, I seriously hope I got it right. <laughs> Well, I think it, I think the uh, the care that you've taken with the characters absolutely comes through on the page. Well, thank you. Uh, and I'm uh, I'm a big proponent of one of the whole reasons uh, we're coming to uh, reading in the first place, and certainly why we're coming to to writing, uh, is because we want to empathize with characters that are unlike us. If we're not as writers going to seek out characters of different perspectives, what are we doing with our time? Why why bother in the first place? And a right. uh, technical question uh, for anybody that, that wants to be as brave as, uh, as Kathy Appel. Uh, how do you go about finding and selecting a good sensitivity reader? Oh, that's a good question. Well, um, I was lucky because I actually, for a, a while, uh, Justina Ireland was managing a database of, of, uh, of readers. And that's how I found mine. And, and I'll, but, but I think, I, and I know she's not managing that database any longer. So I doubt that, that, that it's still available, but um, um, mostly it's word of mouth. You know, you find somebody who, uh, 
who has hired a reader and just, you know, go from there. And, and, that, and that's not ideal, actually. But, uh, um, you know, both of the all of my sensitivity readers asked me not to name them in the acknowledgements. And, and there's good reason for that, you know, because if I did mess up something up, they, they certainly should not be held responsible. So, um, I guess yeah. I had the chance to be mentioned in the back of a Kathy Appelt novel. Don't hold me responsible for me. Put my name well, there. I trust me. I thanked them profusely, but, um, but yeah, no, I'm, and, and I mean, I do think there's a really good reason. So for now, I mean, obviously anybody watching this, this uh, interview, if, if they needed, you know, if they wanted to ask me, um, you, you know, who I use, so I could have a discussion with them about that. And I could check with my reader to see if they were interested, you know, so it's sort of like a, you know, it's like a, um, you know, pass along information. So I'm not going to go out shouting their names for by any or giving stranger their names, but I, I don't mind making those connections. So, so yeah. And, you know, you have to, I mean, you do just have to be very astute and careful about who you're hiring, make sure you're hiring the right person to read your book. Um, so with my African-American character, I, I was very careful about finding someone who has, um, you know, has some credibility in African-American history and in pre-Civil War, um, African-American history and all of that. So, you know, it's not, it's not enough to just find some, some, you know, it's not enough to just find somebody. So, um, so yeah. <laughs> yeah, just walk into a random coffee shop. You, you're an African-American, you got a moment exactly. to read this book. <laughs> Exactly, exactly, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I have a lot of friends that, you know, that read the book for me and gave me lots of lots of great advice and lots of great thoughts. So it was really, really helpful. And I, I think that's that. part of it, too, is being part of a community. Like you said, you went to the SCBWI conference and gosh, SCBWI um, is, you know, it's the major organization for for those of us in the trade. And um, it's an important organization. Um, so I would really encourage, you know, writers to who are interested in writing for kids to be sure and tap into that. I think at one point you said that's uh, probably the most important thing you ever did for your writing. Am I yeah. quoting you kind of correct there? Close yeah. To it. Oh, yeah, it's definitely important. Um, there was a, a group in Houston. I live in College Station, which is about 100 miles from Houston, maybe 90 miles, something like that. And when I first started out, um, they were, you know, they, they were an established chapter of SABWI and I went to everything they did. <laughs> I went to every conference, every, every little monthly meeting, you know, I mean, I, I totally took advantage and, um, and they were so supportive, you know, always they were, they just took me under their wing. They, you know, they, I got involved with them, you know, I helped volunteer and all of that. And, and then we started a chapter here in the Brazos Valley. And, you know, I, I speak at, at SCBWI. I just got home actually from speaking at, at a conference out in California. And, um, but I also go as an attendee. I, you know, I think they're, um, you know, they, they are the group that is most up to date on the issues and on the um, industry of, uh, of the, you know, of the, uh, of children's letters so yeah they're they're super important i'm very grateful for the scbwi in my life 
If you'd like to learn more about SCWBI, please head to the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators, I think, dot org, yes. and uh, become a member today. <laughs> so, <laughs> exactly. Um, is it possible for you to go to one of those conferences and, and, and just be a person in the crowd at, this, at this stage in your career? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I think, and I tell my students this, and, and maybe we can talk briefly about Vermont College of Fine Arts sure. before we're done. But, um, uh, you know, I, 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 I'm constantly teaching. I usually have a, a, men, a mentee or two. I'm, I'm working with a wonderful writer through um, We Need Diverse Books right now. I have a mentee for that, that organization. Um, but, um, you know, even after they graduate, even after they leave me, I tell them, you know, I, I sign up for a workshop or an online course or, you know, a weekend retreat every year, at least once or one or two of them a year, because I, I love being a teacher. And I feel like I'm a better writer because I'm a teacher, but I also love being a student, you know? So, um, so yeah, I, I love going to the meetings and the conferences and just chilling. It's great to go and not have to do anything except just soak it in. You know, I always learn something. So, um, so yeah, I think it's important to continue learning. I mean, years ago when I first started out, I was, uh, I was taking a, an online course, or not an online course. I was taking a, a course down in Houston that I had to drive to um, once a week and at Rice University. And I remember somebody telling me, well, Kathy, even Tiger Woods has a coach. <laughs> and that was back in his heyday, you know, when he was the best golfer in the world and he had a coach. And so I thought, yeah, I'm going to remember that, you know, <laughs> that everybody needs a coach from time to time. So, yeah, so I like being coached. I'm still hanging on to this foolish notion that perhaps one day, uh, not not this day, but perhaps one day, I would be the greatest writer that I could ever be. And on that day, I'll, I'll just listen to myself. But I don't think that day is coming. Doesn't sound like it's come for you. <laughs> not 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 at all. Not yet. I don't I don't I don't know that that would be a good thing actually. Um, I recently, while actually while I was in the middle of writing Angel Thieves, I was having a conversation with my agent, and I said, you know, I don't think I've written my best book yet. And she said, her response was, if you had, what would be the point? And I thought, you know, that was so instructive to me. You know, what would be the point? I mean, if you, if you, if you don't keep reaching, if you don't keep going for it, you know, and trying new things or exploring something new, then what is the point? And so that was, that was important that she said that to me because I think it's easy to become complacent. You know, it's I, I had a I had a period of time where I was writing a lot of picture books and and they were fairly successful. You know, I mean, they were I had a comfortable career. Uh, they they I can't say they came easy to me, but but I kind of had my my niche, you know, where I felt like I was, you know, I knew what I was doing. Um, I had a I, I was, you know, I mean, I was fairly successful with it. But I just, you know, I woke up one morning and I thought, I can't keep doing this. I'm, I'm not stretching, you know, this, it, it felt deadening to me. And, um, and that's when I've started working on the underneath. You know, I felt like the underneath was something I absolutely had to write um, for my very own soul. Um, just to, you know, to, not to prove anything, but just to, 
to get out of that um, that place where I just felt too cozy, you know. And I like being cozy. I like the comfort of it, you know. I I like being in my house with my cats and my coffee and um, you know my books and my friends and you know I I like the comfort. We all like to be comfortable, but. Um, after a while, it's like, well, what is the purpose of this? You know, I've proved I can do this. Let's do something else now. So, so yeah. So, um, yeah. So I think it's important to continue to study and, um, you know, and to, I, I mean, uh, when I was writing the underneath, my friend Tobin Anderson, MT Anderson, we, he called me one day, we were having a, a talk and, and I talked about, you know, I was whining to him because I was in the middle of the underneath and I was like, I'm never going to get this. I'm never, I don't feel like I'm, you know, I don't feel uh, smart enough in the face of this book. And he said, oh, you should always write what you think you can't. And that was such good advice because it told me that, you know, might as well go for it because you know, if, if you don't do it, if you can't do it, you didn't think you could anyway. So what have you got to lose? You know, <laughs> And so, so yeah, it was like having complete permission to fail. And, um, and I think that's really important to give yourself that permission to fail because otherwise you don't ever try it. You know, you don't, you don't reach out and try something new. So, um, anyway, I felt totally like that while I was writing Angel Thieves that I was, completely writing something I didn't think I could. So, yeah. Anyway. I've got more questions about all of that, uh, including, do you have a recording of that conversation between you and N.T. Anderson? <laughs> can, can we hear that? <laughs> I wish, I wish, I wish. He's great to talk to, by the way. He's, he's a wonderful person and such a smart, intelligent and, and generous person. Yeah. And such That's a great writer. If you're listening, I would be thrilled to chat with you uh, on here anytime. <laughs> how uh, how long had you been? We'll, we'll come back. I have more questions for you uh, about Angel Thieves. But how long had you been writing and publishing before the Underneath happened? Uh, quite a while. Uh, let's see. The Underneath came out in uh, 2008, and so my first book came out in '93. So, um, but I, you know, I started writing way before then. I mean, it took me a while to sell my first book. Um, but even before that though, I was writing for, um, you know, magazines and newspapers and, you know, writing for myself and stuff. And so, um, so I've, I've written all my life, but I didn't, my first book did not come out until 1993. And then the underneath came out 2008. So 15 years. That yeah, right? underneath that that was i mean you you'd had success you, you said you were cozy you were having a good time and, and then yeah. and then you took this chance that you thought you you might fail completely on the underneath debuts becomes a newberry honor uh becomes the number one amazon book of the year that year i think um, i'm not sure i i i well i i uh, the wording was unclear uh, when i when i read it but i'm pretty sure what amazon meant to say was that you you sold the most books in your category that year um and then uh, you uh, you were up for the National Book Award, all sorts of, 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 of acclaim. And, and give us, uh, those of us that are that haven't had that experience yet, uh, all the writers listening, allow us to live vicariously through you for <laughs> just a moment. Uh, what was that experience like? Well, um, it was 
it was wonderful. I mean, it was it was surprising. Um, I you know I was I was really really surprised by it. Um, you may not know this, but the underneath didn't get just stellar reviews. I mean, it. I think it got one starred review, and I think it was from Publishers Weekly. Um, Publishers so, Weekly, you're dead to me. <laughs> no, I mean they they were the ones who who gave it um, the starred reviews. I I think I I can't recall actually, but oh, you know, really? so the reviews were were mixed. Um, so you know, I mean. And, and it was one of those books, it was interesting because I think the same thing is probably going to happen with Angel Thieves in that um, my friend Kimberly Willis-Holt, who, who won the National Book Award several years ago for um, Zachary Beaver Comes to Town, um, a, just a wonderful, wise author. When the underneath came out, she said, um, you know, Kathy, you always want your book to either be loved or hated. You don't want it in that middle, you know, where people just shrug their shoulders and go, well, okay. You know, I mean, she said, because that, that way, you know, you're, you're, you know, you're striking a chord somewhere, you know, people may not be, I mean, like you were talking about violence earlier. I mean, I had a lot of blowback on the underneath for the violence in that book. And, um, and so, um, so there was that, you know, there was that happening and, I even had a librarian who sent me an email and said that she was sorry that the book won the Newbery honor because it meant that more kids would have to read it. Oh. And, and so, yeah, that was pretty harsh, wasn't it? So I, I, I sent her an email and said, and said, I promise, you know, no animals were harmed in the writing of this book. And, and so, but I get it, you know, I do, I do understand. And, and so um, everybody is allowed to have their opinion. And, and so, so, you know, I think, I think there's some of that with, with angel thieves too, that, you know, people are either going to really like it or not really like it because it's not an easy book. I don't think it's an easy book to read. And so um, it's, it, it certainly wasn't an easy book to write. So um, I, I feel like I'm kind of getting off the path here, but anyway, you know, the thing oh, you were supposed that, to give us the vicarious vision of all the great oh, yeah, things the, that happened the when the, the beam happened. of holy light shined down on you and the angelic choir said, oh, you've made it to your writer. We all love right, you now. Right. Yeah, the, 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 yeah, that. Okay, that. Let me get back to that. Because, <laughs> I, I don't want to leave, you know, I don't want to end that part of the conversation on a negative note because, uh, you know, obviously the good went far outweighed the the negative and, and I'm still so grateful. And the number one feeling that I felt when all that was happening was I wanted all of my writer friends to have that experience. You know, I just, I just kept thinking there, you know, I wish this person could have this. I wish, I mean, I just, when something wonderful happens, I think it's, it's in us as humans to want our, the people we love the most to have that same experience, you know, to, to just, to, to, to just be able to have that moment in the in the spotlight is really really special, so I'm enormously grateful that I got that. But I would love it if, you know, I, I know a number of writers that I just feel like have just kind of flown under the radar. They continue to do beautiful, um, you know, essential kinds of books, and and it's you know I feel like their turn, you know, their turn in the sun. And oh man, it would it would just make me extremely happy if one of my students, 
you know, had that experience. I just think, because I love it when my students get their books published. It, it makes me so happy. It's like, it's almost as exciting as when I get mine published. <laughs> well, I know exactly what you mean. I uh, run a workshop here locally, which you can sign up for at middlegradeninja.com. Um, and uh, uh, one of my former students uh, sent me an email uh, two or three weeks ago. And the story we had workshopped a couple of times has been accepted and is going to be published. And she's got some prize money coming from it. She's going to be interviewed here locally. And I was so excited. I just walked around all day just feeling like, and in a way I haven't felt when it was one of my books that something nice had happened to. Yeah, I know. I know. I, I, I'm, I'm always happy to take credit <laughs> for my students, <laughs> even though for a number of my students, you know, they, they were fine with, with the, you know, I mean, they would have been uh, uh, fine without me, but, but, uh, but I, I, you know, selfishly like to take credit. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, let's, um, so many questions for you. And now I'm, I'm, I'm uh, off on, on what we should talk about first. Um, oh, well, let me ask you one follow-up to the, the, the moment of the angelic choir singing and the, the light shining. Mm-hmm. After that, we get a, a year or two out and, and you're still at your desk alone with the, the cats and the coffee. and, right. and writing. <laughs> uh, Was there a, any kind of period? I, I, I've always noticed that um, uh, there's like an emotional equilibrium. It, it seems to me anyway, that if you have an extreme high, you can maybe prepare for an extreme low. Was it difficult to, for any period to keep writing after that with the worry that you might not be that wonderful? Yes. Oh, yeah. Every I mean, every time <laughs> I think that happens with every book, you know, I, I when I embark upon a new book, I always feel like the book is smarter than me, that I'm not I'm not uh, good enough for the book <laughs> that, you know, that. I'm not going to get it right. I mean, I, I feel, yeah. And, and, and having a big success like that, um, it does make you feel like you've got this bar that you have to, you know, jump over or you have to meet at least. And so, and there are expectations. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not just being disingenuous, you know, people have expectations. And so, you know, there's always that worry that you're going to somehow let your readers down. Um, with the next book, you know, that it's not what they were expecting or whatever. Um, so, so there's always that, you know, I, I think, but you know, writers are neurotic just by our nature. <laughs> so, <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> so I'm no different. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, and part of that fear must be because no matter what you do, as you were saying earlier, especially if you're aiming to, to either make people extremely excited or, or hate the book and get some provoke some kind of reaction from your reader for yeah. at least one reader, that probably will be true that they were expecting the underneath too. And they got something else instead. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It is interesting. However, I mean, the, the publishing industry is, you know, it's unique unto itself. Um, years and years ago when I was still writing picture books and I still do write picture books. Actually, I have, I have a new picture book coming out this summer, which I'm very, very happy about. Um, What's the name of it? It's called Max Attacks. And it's about a cat, a kitten basically that just attacks everything. You know, he's just a, a madman in the house. And so he's just on the, he's on the, he's on the attack path anyway. Um, and esteemed um, audience can look forward to purchasing that. When's it coming out? It's coming out in June. Okay. And it's just adorable. The artist is Penelope Dunnigan. And I think that's her name. Yeah, I'm sure it is. I hope hope I got that right. She's a a fairly new artist. And so she did a great job. She 
she painted the cat blue. So he's just this, this little wild blue cat and it just makes me happy. <laughs> so, but anyway, um, so years and years ago, um, I was working, I, I wrote a picture book and it was based on, um, my stepfather. I had a, I had a really wonderful stepfather and, um, and I started thinking one day that, you know, stepfathers are so under step, step parents get such a bad rap in children's books, actually in all, you know, across the board, they get a bad rap. Um, and, uh, you know, there's always the wicked or evil stepmother or stepfather. And, and, you know, some of that is deserved. I mean, a trope doesn't become a trope unless it happens. And so, um, but there, there are far more. I'm, I'm quietly I thinking I can name at least five terrible step parents I know of, but go on. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're out there. I'm not denying it, but there are also some really great step parents, you know, some that are doing great by their stepchildren. And, and I had a, I had a, a, a pretty good stepfather. And so, you know, and, and one of the things he did to win us over was he, had the best stories. He was just a great storyteller. And so, you know, we'd sit at, at, in the evenings, we'd have dinner and he'd just launch into a story and it was always funny and he was great at telling them. And, um, and if you can imagine it, he married my mother. I have two sisters. He married my mother. I was 16. My sisters were 14 and 13. So imagine he was a lifelong bachelor marrying a woman with three teenage daughters. I think that was really brave. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I've ever known that bravery in my entire life. <laughs> no, I, I've never been that brave. So I just, I wanted to write a book, you know, to honor him. And he, he died many, many years ago, so he wasn't around. But um, anyway, uh, so I wrote this, this book, um, about and I and I made it a family of coyotes, so we can talk about animals after this, right? Sure. But, um, so and you can I talk about anything you want. <laughs> I I chose coyotes specifically because they're scruffy, you know, and families are scruffy. Coyotes, you know, they're just they're not like they're not as glamorous as like a wolf, you know. They're they're not as you know charming as as a raccoon, I mean, they're, they're scruffy and, and kind of solitary. And so, um, so I thought it'd be cool to have a family of coyotes that to have a little coyote who has to deal with a, a stepfather and, or a new step has to come to accept a new stepfather. Okay. Well, so I wrote that book and sold it and there's a whole history about this book, but anyway, bottom line, it took 17 years for it to be out 17 years. <laughs> because of something you wanted to do or because of the publishers? It, it was just a variety of things. It was like unfortunate events that kept happening. You know, the wrong illustrator, then an illustrator kept it. Then the publishing company got bought up by another publishing company. The editor left. A new editor came in. She left. I mean, it's just like one thing after another. <laughs> so uh, uh, the, the lesson here, the lesson I want to leave you with is that, um, okay, one of my concerns when that book came out, even though I've loved it all along, was that, you know, I wrote that book like 17 years earlier and I was thinking, this book is gonna come out and people are gonna go, Kathy Appel is not improving. <laughs> <laughs> you know? 
<laughs> this reads like it's 17 years worse than yeah, her previous yeah. book. Like she could have written this way back in the day, but what, you know, as, as it turned out, the book was fine. It's called, uh, it's called uh, when, when Otis courted mama and um, Harcourt, Harcourt um, published it. And it's, it's just a terrific, you know, uh, I mean, the, the art is beautiful and I just, you know, turned out great. It was worth waiting for, but you know, I, I had a joke that when that book comes out, I'm going to give it, I'm going to hand it its high school diploma. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah. So, you know, these things happen. It, it's, it's yeah. So well, of course, publishing is a wonderful industry and I'm sure you're the only author that ever had a story like no, that, but just I, in case there's, no. there's somebody out there that's watching or, or hearing this uh, and they're, they're experiencing some sort of calamity or another as, as a result of circumstances beyond their control. What did right. you do during those 17 years to, to keep your sanity and keep you focused on all the other books you've written? Yeah, just kept writing. You know, I mean, I, did, I went years without even thinking about that book. <laughs> I mean, it was always in the back burner. At one time, my agent tried to get the rights back. You know, she thought maybe we could sell it to somebody else, but um, they, the publisher Harcourt didn't want to let them go. So, um, so that, you know, that was, that was actually encouraging because I thought, well, if they're not going to let them go, then surely they're eventually going to publish it. So, but you know, it just kept falling on one desk after another. And so, um, so yeah, I was, I was very happy to see it come out. <laughs> So, yeah, so, I mean, it happens, you know. One uh, quick question about uh, um, picture books, and then we'll, we'll veer back and we'll talk about writing animal characters. Okay. Um, but you've got a book out called Counting Crows. Uh, and when I saw that, I thought, are you a oh, big yeah. fan of the band, or is that just a happy coincidence? It was a little of both. I do like their music a lot, um, but just the idea of Counting Crows, I mean, I had that idea for years. I mean, I keep a, a a folder on my desktop called ideas. It's just, you know, and I just, I keep a running list of ideas. And, you know, the truth is ideas are not the same thing as stories. So I've got lots of ideas that, you know, may or may not be turned into a story or even have a story in them. But but just, I just had this image of crows counting things, you know, and, and how fun that would be, you know, to have a, a picture book of these crows that count. You know, and, but uh, but for a long time, I couldn't figure out how to approach it. I, you know, I didn't know exactly um, what, how to enter the book or, you know, what the crows would be counting, uh, you know, would the crows count each other? I, I mean, I just had all these questions. And so one day I just kind of got this little rhythm in my head about it. And, um, and, and so that's when I started started writing it and it came pretty quickly after that but it was an idea that i had on the back burner for literally 10 or 12 years before i actually wrote it so you know ideas sometimes i think they're kind of like pies you know you write you write them and you have to set them on the window and let them cool for a while <laughs> before they're ready to slice into um so yeah so i have lots of ideas that you know that will never never come to fruition. But that was one that I just kept, it kept bubbling up. It's like, you know, I'd have a space of time and, um, and I'd think, oh, well, I wish I could, can I figure out how to do the counting grows, you know, <laughs> but I do like their music. And actually one of them, one of the guys in the band um, gave it a shout out somewhere. I can't remember if it's been a long time, but, um, but yeah, it was fun. It was fun to see. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, I lied. One more question about picture books, and then we'll, yeah. then we'll talk animals. Um, at this stage uh, in your career, you're the Kathy Appelt. Um, you, you've been doing this for a while and very successfully. Has it changed how much input you have um, in terms of putting a picture book together, in terms of what the illustration is going to look like versus when you were first beginning and, and just kind of hoping for the best? Or is it is it still kind of hands off? You do the you do the book part and then step back and let the illustrator take over? Uh, as far as change, I, I don't think so. I, I try to stay out of the art part of it. Um, unless there's something that just has to happen on the page that is not obvious in the text, uh, then I, you know, then I'll, uh, you know, I may make a, an artist note or something, a little note there, you know, about what I see happening, but I, I try never to um, instruct the artist or get in the way of the artist because you know the primary thing that an author since I'm not an artist um, I really want that artist to take ownership of the story you know I want the story to be as much his or her uh, their art as um, as it is mine so I you know I know is that strategic and thinking yeah. that if they, they put their heart into it they're gonna give you their absolute best absolutely I want them to um, own the book you know, I want it to be their book as much as mine. And so, um, so I think, and I think the best way of doing that is just to stay out of the way. Now, um, you know, nowadays, well, always, usually, almost always, I get to see sketches or some, some rendition of the art before the final art is finished. And, um, and sometimes my, my editor will ask me, you know, ask me what I think about it. Um, and that's fine, you know. I'm always glad to to offer an opinion. Uh, I, I can, I love giving my opinion. <laughs> but uh, but uh, um, you know, I do I do try to let the uh, the artist own the book, and it's their art. And you know, and I, I love seeing the final art come in. I just, it's always so wonderful when the art comes in. It's just so dazzling. I think. I think picture art, picture book art is just some of the best art there is. And, and, you know, I always have, we, we all have to remember that for a lot of kids, a picture book is their first experience of representational art. You know, they don't go to Not every kid gets to go to a museum or has art hanging in their house. And so, um, you know, that's their first shot at, at seeing and, you know, a story, interpreted in the art and so um so yeah i just i love the art i, I love it i love picture books in general <laughs> they make me happy they make me happy also one of my yeah. uh, proudest moments was when i got to interview uh david ezra stein at the oh, yeah. blog because uh, he'd written a book called pouch which was my son's all-time favorite oh. we read that book every night and we were reading it sometimes three or four times a day uh, yeah. and, and sometimes more depending uh, and yeah. then i got that that email back from him that yes he would be interviewed and I was like, oh, i'm winning parenting today <laughs> i don't know what's going to happen uh tomorrow right. but for this right. day job right. welcome a picture book, you know, our experience, my experience of picture books is they really do become part of your family fabric, the fabric of your family. I mean, you know, even today, my kids are all grown up. They're in their 30s. And um, but even today, you know, we have little code words like um, um, like, you know, corduroy, the famous uh, picture book corduroy that he you know, he he says, I think I always wanted to have a friend. 
And, and we often in our family say, I think I always wanted to have this, or I think I always wanted to have that, you know, I mean, we, so we quote, and, and the same with, um, um, you know, thank you, thank you, Sam, I am. We're like, thank you, thank you, Sam, I am. <laughs> I do, I, I love green eggs and ham. You know, I mean, we, we have those sayings in our, in our family. So I, I'm sure every family has them, every family who has experienced a wealth of picture books that is. So, yeah. And that's how you know you're winning parenting. If the uh, <laughs> things that your family has are coming from books, you're doing something right. Right, I hope so. <laughs> well, let's uh, let's talk animals, because I know Linda Benson, uh, the author, is is probably going to be listening to this, and she's probably pulling her hair out at this point, going, Rob, ask her about the animal characters. <laughs> Without delay, Kathy Appelt, master animal character writer, what is the secret to writing a great animal character? Okay, well, I don't know if it's a secret, but um, for me, when I'm writing a, an animal character, um, I, you know, I do, I actually do research on that animal. I mean, I can't tell you how, how much I researched raccoons when I was writing the uh, Sugar Man Swamp, you know, the True Blue Scouts. Um, because, you know, I mean, I mean, I just needed to know, you know, like, what they were capable of as far as, you know, like with raccoons, for example, you know, what were they capable of? Well, they can really, really climb. And, uh, you know, they, they swim, they, you know, they're gregarious and they can squeeze, they, they can like bend their bodies into tight places in ways that other, it's like their backbone is really flexible. So, so these are things that I didn't know, you know, before I wrote the book. So I always start out really researching the animal itself and what what species it, it's it's in and what you know what what animal strata you know what what's its species what who is it related to um i study where they're from you know if if they're um indigenous to the area or if they've been introduced i study what they eat and um you know and then in usually in my research i always find little odd things little anecdotes usually about a particular animal, like some experience that somebody's had with them. Not that that makes it into my book, but um, so I really, you know, do, it seems, it's, it's, it, you know, it seems unnecessary in so many ways. I mean, a raccoon's a raccoon, right? But, um, but the other thing that's important, okay, so you have animal characters and, and for the purposes of fiction, for the most part, um, you have to endow them with human feelings and emotions, right? So that, so that we can really understand there's, there's still a character and in some ways they're placeholders for a human. And so, so they still have to be endowed with, um, you know, feelings of joy and sorrow and wonder and, you know, all those, all those things. But you have to always keep in mind that those are, imposed upon the animal from the author. So as an author, I impose those, those characteristics upon a, you know, an animal. But the, the main thing to remember is that, okay, you've got this placeholder character who is actually human, you know, is, is has human emotions, human feelings, uh, human needs, but it's not quite human. And so the, the tricky part then is to um, make sure that you still maintain the ish, what I call the ish 
factor, the ISH factor. And that is with a raccoon, for example, I have to be sure that the character is still raccoonish. You know, like, okay, he's the, the scouts, for example, were really, you know, they were brothers and they, you know, they were really kind of like, I envisioned them kind of as like fourth or fifth graders, you know, age wise and emotion wise and capability wise and all of that. But because they were raccoons, they had this kind of flexibility and freedom that a real fourth or fifth grader, a human wouldn't have. You know, they wouldn't be out in the swamp by themselves. But maturity wise, that's kind of the level they were. So um, so I'm not sure if this is making sense, but when I'm writing an animal character, I have to remember that they're a placeholder for largely a placeholder. Also that they um, they they have to have emotions and feelings and all of that. And then finally, that they maintain that ish factor. So if I'm writing a bear, it still has to be bear-ish. You know, you still have to have a bear that growls, you know, a bear that is, you know, that could eat you <laughs> if it had the uh, inclination, you know, that sort of thing. So so I don't know if that's helpful, but that that's, you know, that's the approach I take. So, I was hoping you were going to tell me that you maybe put on a raccoon suit and go outside and and dig through garbage and, and do the do the furry <laughs> all do the furry what are those things those guys that do that called the furry <laughs> oh, yeah, no, the that would not be me no but it's you know it's kind of fun imagining you know what it must be like to uh, to be a raccoon or a snake and one of the nice things about really one of the great things about writing animal characters is that you do get this viewpoint that you wouldn't as a human, like, you know, a snake character is right there at ground level. So a snake is going to like be looking up through the flowers, you know, to see the sky, you know, unless you get down on the ground and, you know, and look up through the flowers, you, that's a point of view that most of us never have. So the uh, like in my like my little raccoon, um, you know, he bingo was just dying to climb to the top of the loblolly pine tree. It was, you know, mission pine tree, mission loblolly or whatever it was. Uh, and, and and that was his, you know, his goal in life was to get to the top of that tree. And, um, you know, humans, not very many humans climb to, to the top of trees. Some do, but not very many. So but lots of raccoons do. <laughs> They're great climbers. So you get to, you know, see the world from the top of the tree. That gives you a, you know, a perspective, a point of view that you wouldn't if you were, um, you know, if you were uh, writing it from a human point of view. With Zora, the, um, the little ocelot in Animal Thieves, you know, she's the, she, I used her um, as, as a, as the tie, you know, she, um, uh, she's, she was at one time indigenous to the area to Houston, the area that Houston now sits on. There were lots of ocelots there at one time, uh, but she's no longer there. There are no, there are no longer any ocelots in or, or if they are there's, I mean, it's impossible really that if, if they're there, it's because somebody captured one and set them, set her loose. Um, 
So um, there, I'm sure there are also lots in Houston, but their their pets are trapped or whatever. Anyway, so um, but because she was there at the time of the backstory, that there were ocelots there, and now, you know, I have her in the current day, the the real time story. She serves as a kind of bridge between the previous story that's set in 1830s and the and the current real-time story. So I use her as a bridge to say, this is what was, once was, and now this is this is happening now. And, you know, and the only way that an ocelot would be uh, present in my story is if she were captured or being, or being used as an exotic pet. And, um, and so, and so what I wanted to do in that case was show you know, show the the um, the state really that um, yes, we have this this brilliant urban setting, this beautiful city, and Houston is a really wonderful city, but it came at a cost. You know, it came at a cost, and so the cost now is with this animal. You know, the question becomes: Now what? You know, now what do we do? What do we do with this information? And, and how are we as humans going to respond? And so that was Cade's, you know, Cade had to respond. You know, we hope that he responded well to her situation. So, and, you know, she also was bio level. You know, she was at the level of the bio throughout the story. So we're seeing the bio as, as the bio rolls by. So anyway. Is that helpful? I hope so. <laughs> I think so. I think uh, I think we pretty well covered it. Um, well, let's uh, let's talk a little bit more about uh, Angel Thieves because this is um, um, not so much a departure because I could definitely see the Kathy Appel DNA in the story yeah. um, because it's 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 multiple uh, perspectives just like many of your other stories. In fact, let's let's start there. What is the advantage from having multiple perspectives as opposed to a straightforward single narrative? Uh, well, that's a good question. Um, boy, I would give anything to write a story with one perspective. <laughs> that's a goal of mine. <laughs> um, well, you know, I mean, I think I think it's like anything else. You're you're seeing, you know, seeing the world from different eyes, you know, different points of view. Um, so hopefully the by having a, a cast, a large cast, you're seeing the world, you know, um, um, in different ways. And so as a result, hopefully you get a bigger picture of that world than you would if you were just writing it from a single point of view. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's the primary reason. Um, and I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know. I, um, I, it just seems to be my way of, you know, of telling a story, but, uh, I love the omniscient voice actually and uh, to me it's a classic that the omniscient voice is kind of a classic storyteller's voice and so um so yeah i'm i'm you know i'm i just like the i like the large cast this i think i think this book is my largest cast yet actually um and when you when you have a large cast it comes with lots of possibilities so, and I like the, I like that too, that there are lots of possibilities with, you know, each character presents a new possibility for the story. So a new way of exploring the story. 
So yeah. Does that uh, keep you fresh as well when you're writing on a day-to-day basis and drafting? That okay, well, it's the same story that maybe mm-hmm. I'm a little bit tired of, but I get to come at it from a new perspective today, and that yeah. refreshes up a little bit. Actually, yes, because um, you know I, I, I'm I, I'm like any other writer. I tend to get stuck. You know where I'm like, okay, where are we going with this? Um, and I found that if I can just you know uh, set set a, set it aside and think, okay, today. I'm really feeling stuck with this story. So today I'm going to concentrate on this one. And so, yeah, definitely. I mean, I did take the different story strands one at a time and work on them. So at any given time, I might pull out the whole um, story that had, you know, that dealt with Soleil, for example, and just work on her for a little while. And then, um, you know, reweave her story back into the, the bigger, the bigger story. And, um, and so, yeah, it's it's helpful in that way to really. And and the truth is, you know, I would be. It, it's all. It also has the domino effect too, which can be really frustrating because, um, you know, I've I've had many experiences where I would work on one one cast member, like like Soleil, for example, and have something occur to me that needed to happen with her, and as a result. I would have to adjust the other stories. So, so it's like every time you make a change, really, you're, you're going to be dealing with a, a, you know, like a domino effect change. So one change, we gets another change, we gets another one. So I, I call the, I, you know, I think of the story as like ho- holding cats on leashes, you know, like a dozen cats on a dozen leashes and trying to keep them from getting tangled and twisted and, and all of that's almost impossible, really. It was, yeah. I had you must enjoy it. the challenge because you, you, <laughs> you keep putting yourself to it. I know. Why? Why? That's what I want to know. <laughs> well, <laughs> probably because the result is excellent books that make readers happy. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you for saying that. Uh, let's hope. Uh, also, I think, you know, I think I have short attention span, too. You know, I mean, I think... Uh, it's kind of nice to be able to jump from character to character and you know, it's hard to concentrate on one for, for an extended amount of time, I think, at least for me. The short attention span, I'm sure helps make you an ideal uh, writer <laughs> for young readers. Well, um, I, you know, I, for years and years, I really, I, it seemed like everything I wrote ended at the bottom of page three. And so, um, so really when I set out to write the underneath, that was, hard for me extended prose is not my strong suit and that's why i write in small chapters like vignettes because um because that's kind of how i naturally write is in those short i I call them i actually have a name for them i call them ssss um short significant scenes and um that's how it's you know that's just kind of my natural bent so to write beyond three pages is a struggle for me. So, you know, this way I can write a short scene and then weave it together with the next short scene. So that's, you know, that's really, that's just kind of, I I feel like in a way I tapped into what I'm naturally good at. Um, But that doesn't mean I don't want to write extended prose. I do, and someday I will. (laughs) That's the goal anyway. (laughs) 
That'd be your uh, next challenge that you set for yourself. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. A couple of uh, questions just on language. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, at one point, I intended to read part of your own book to you. I'm not going to do that. Uh, but uh, you've got um, a, a 10 paragraph uh, passage that's uh, maybe made up of, uh, of less than 200 words. You're right. very big on, you've always reliable for lots of white space on the page, which I think makes your books more attractive to younger readers uh, and, and to me, because I'm, I'm, I'm as lazy as, as any other reader. <laughs> so I, I want that feeling of accomplishment that those short chapters give me because oh, look how much of the book I'm reading how, and how fast I'm reading it. But I wanted to ask you specifically about language because I know you're also a poet mm -hmm. and the language is extremely poetic throughout your novels. So six weeks of drafting, but then uh, I think 150 weeks of, of, of continuing to work on the, the novel after the fact. How much of those carefully polished sentences happen in draft one and how much of that is, is how many drafts are you typically doing? Well, sometimes, I mean, sometimes you get lucky and a great sentence lands on the page. You know, it's like, whoa, I like that sentence. Uh, the, the problem with that is that, that those beautiful sentences can really become traps. You know, they're, they're hard to give up because I, I mean, I'm like anybody, I become enchanted with my beautiful sentences. Right. Um, and so they're, they're hard to dispatch, but sometimes they, I mean, at, at the end of the day, you have the, the most important question that you have to ask of any sentence, any word, any, any phrase is, um, is this serving the story? You know, if this is not, if this is just here because it's beautiful, uh, then it's likely not serving the story. And often a, something beautiful can actually pull you out of the story, you know, where you stop and you go, oh my God, that's beautiful. You know, and it's not that I don't enjoy those moments. I do, you know, I love it when I'm reading along and I, and I read something so gorgeous that I just have to pause for a minute and savor it. I mean, I do love that. It happens more often with poetry, I think. Um, and poetry is sort of built for that. Um, you know, it's one of the, it's one of its strong suits actually. But when you're writing a story, you know, the, the essential question is always, does this move the story forward, you know, or does this add to the story? Does this illuminate some part of the story? Cause story is the goddess, you know, she's the ruler of the universe and everything has to pay homage to story. And if it doesn't, then you're not, you know, you're, you're just, you know, being a, a poser, I think, you know, where you're just putting these beautiful passages in there. And, and, you know, I, I, I fall in love with my, with my words. I fall in love with those, those wonderful passages there. I'm, I'm not lying about that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, at the end of the day, you do have to, you do have to cut what, what's not working. And, and you asked about number of drafts. Honestly, I don't know how many drafts I wrote with Angel Thieves, but um, it was, it was more than 30. I'll say that. Um, almost all of my books require between 25 and however many drafts. I, I, I really, I don't know how many drafts Angel Thieves was. I would, I would venture to guess around 40 or 50. And not every draft is a massive overhaul. You know, some of them are, are actually, you know, maybe just tinkering here and there, but definitely um, it was a lot of drafts. <laughs> so, yeah. And like I said, I, if I could do it again, I'd probably write another, I'd probably go through it again and draft another. 
<laughs> so, I mean, I did like five drafts just this past, like between Christmas and New Year's. Or no, backtrack, like between Thanksgiving and New Year's because the book went to the printer on the day after New Year's. So, and I probably re redid, I probably went through it at least five times between Thanksgiving and then. So, so, so yeah, it's kind of a constant thing. Yeah. Something that uh, Laura Martin taught me to do because I, I, I too suffer from the, um, to a lesser extent, because my, my sentences aren't as, aren't, aren't as beautiful as yours. But when I come across a sentence that I just love so much that really needs to go or an entire passage where I've discussed politics in my middle grade novel, which yeah. Yeah. I'm terrible about doing, but I but I, I made the perfect political point. I, I guess yeah. I'll go put that someplace else. Um, but what she taught me to do was to copy it and paste it into another document and save that and that way. So it's always there. If yeah. you ever need it, go back yeah. and, and, and visit it. But I, I never do. Yeah. How, um, uh, how do you get through that? Those hard decisions where you you've got perfect uh, prose that you yeah. know has to go because it's not serving the goddess of story. Right. Um, well, I just, you know, I do my best to, uh, to just, you know, acknowledge that, yes, this is lovely. <laughs> you know, I tell myself, Kathy, you've written this lovely sentence. Good for you. You're a really good craftswoman. <laughs> 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 and, and like, you know, like your friend said, put it, you know, paste it onto something else. And, and, and you, you know, you may write a really wonderful poem out of it or, or use it in, in the next story. I mean, yeah. Uh, Jane Yolen, you know, she says, don't ever throw anything away. And, and she's right about that um, because I have gone back and retrieved things that, you know, to use for a different purpose. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, and there's, you know, you're not breaking any laws by writing something beautiful and then taking it out. That's for sure. So, yeah, but I love what you said about the politics. I know, I know we agreed not to get into politics too much, but um well, that's a good segue. Let's talk a little bit about it, I guess. I think at a certain level, every book is political, you know, at a certain level. Um, you know, we could argue about that, I guess. But um, I know with Angel Thieves, I was so shaken when, um, you know, 2016 rolled around. I just, I, I had a really low spell where I thought, you know, it made me kind of, re I think, and I think a lot of people did this, to sort of reevaluate the purpose of our work, you know, and, and ask the questions of, you know, is this, is, you know, how does this add to the conversation of who we are as citizens, as people, as just human beings, really? And, um, and so, you know, I had this, this moment where I really, I really questioned, you know, am, is anything I do, I'm doing, does it have meaning? You know, is it going to make any kind of difference in the world? Um, especially in light of the darkness that we, that I feel like we're in the midst of. And um, one of the, one of the reasons that I wrote that, that story, that pre-Civil War story is because as a Texan, as a lifelong Texan, you know, I had always been taught that when Texas fought the war of independence to its, its own war of independence to be free of Mexico, you know, that that was a good thing that, you know, we were separating ourselves from the tyrannical Mexico and Spain and all of that. And, um, and, you know, I was, you know, treated to the heroes of the Alamo. I mean, that's a, that's like a myth here in Texas. It's like our, it's like our creation story in Texas, right? The, the, the Alamo <laughs> in a way. In but, the beginning. Uh, 
God created the Alamo. Exactly. <laughs> and so, and so what I soon discovered based, and it really all stemmed from study, learning about this woman in Houston who had been set free upon her master's death. And, um, and just from, you know, researching her, what I learned and, and I, I think this is common knowledge now, but it certainly wasn't when I was growing up is, is that um, Mexico had made in in 1829, they had made slavery illegal in Mexico. And so of course, as a, as a territory of Mexico, Texas would have fallen under Mexico's laws. So Texas technically should have been a slave-free state. You know, slavery was illegal beginning in 1829. Well, none of the Texas settlers wanted that. You know, they wanted their slaves. Um, they were trying to get people to come in, you know, from the Southern US and they wanted to bring slaves. All of the heroes of the Alamo, Crockett, Bowie, Lamar, all of them were slaveholders. And, um, and so in a way, that war that Texas fought against Mexico was sort of like a precursor to the larger civil war that um, that our country embarked upon. And and, you know, there were a lot of people that were really, really watching um, Texas to see how that was all going to fall out. And in that case, Texas, what you know, the slaveholders won that altercation. And so kind of puts a dark bend on remember the Alamo and all that uh, celebrating that happens. They uh, yeah, they weren't really heroes. They were fighting to keep their slaves. You know, that was a there were other reasons too, but that was the major reason for fighting against Mexico. And as it turned out, there was a loosely organized um, um, underground railroad in the South, but it led to Mexico. So the huge irony, instead of Canada, it led to make, so the huge irony that I was dealing with while I was writing this story is that, um, you know, that river has always been a border. It only for a long time, at least in, you know, from the early 1800s, um, as runaway slaves would cross the river into Mexico. Mexico was what represented freedom. So, you know, now we think of it in the reverse. Well, but not not back then. I mean, that if, if, a, if a runaway slave could cross into Mexico, they were free. And um, interestingly, there was an article in the Washington Post just yesterday that was that uh, the reporter was is talking about a settlement there in in Mexico that was settled by freed slaves. And, um, and so interesting, you know, that we're still dealing with the fallout from all of that. And, um, you know, when I started writing the story, um, I didn't know that we were separating babies from their families on the, on the border. So here I was writing about a woman who has kidnapped her own children, you know, to, to, to keep them from being separated from her. And, and, it, and it's still going on. And it was so, um, you know, heartbreaking and frustrating to me that, uh, you know, that this is still happening right at our southern border, that we're still separating babies from their, I mean, I mean, we continued to separate, you know, we, we back in the slavery days, we, were, we, we separated babies from their parents all the time. And then, you know, then it continued with Native Americans being 
um, you know, taken from their families and put in government schools and whatnot. And, you know, it's, it, it continues today. And, and the most flagrant abuse right now is, is along the border. Um, I'm sure it's happening in, you know, foster homes and, you know, I don't want to get into all of it, but, um, but, but so, so, you know, I, I feel like unless we reckon with our history, which is, you know, what I was trying to show with this book is one of the things um, we're never going to be able to move forward. You know, we're, we have to, we, I, I think we have to come to see that those guys at the Alamo, they were no heroes, you know, and um, I mean, they were, they were fighting for, for something that is so immoral, you know, so morally repugnant um, that, and, and until we come to grips with that, until we do have some sort of reckoning, not just in Texas, but just our whole country, I think we're going to continue to fight the civil war. I mean, just, just today, you know, that, that Congressman whose name I shall not say uh, from Iowa you know, was putting tweets out about, and you know, the next civil war here in our country. And, and I'm just, I just think we've never, we haven't finished, we haven't finished the civil war. And until we, until we really, you know, talk about it and show, try to illuminate it, even in fiction, um, I think, I think we have a long way to go. So that's, and I didn't mean to be so depressing, but. Uh, but it's a but, depressing world we're living in at the moment it, it, it for all way. time, unfortunately. And so I think it's our responsibility to shine a light on where we've been so that we can then go on and move towards the light, you know, to, to, to make some better choices and to, um, you know, and I think that that at the end of the day is our job as writers for kids is to, you know, provide stories that tell the truth um but also you know hopefully hopefully encourage uh them to make good choices to do something good like Cade, you know to 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 yearn for doing something good you know something really good because that you know that's so much more life affirming especially you know you think of of zora that's the life affirming choice is to do something good um so Anyway, you've only got so many years. You need to use them wisely. <laughs> I've got uh, while, while while we're talking about politics, and I want to make sure I ask you about religion too. So we're just gonna spill it all um, because I one one reason I try to steer clear of politics is because I'm aware of how extremely di divisive it is at the moment. I've got a couple of family members that I'm only half on speaking terms <laughs> with at the moment yeah, because they support Trump. And then I come along with my, or they, they did support Trump. And I come along with my, my African-American wife and my African-American son. It's like, I, I, I don't feel comfortable around you when you got that MAGA hat on. That's a white hood. So yeah. there, there I've, I, I've said it, it, it's not there. That's, that's another reason yeah, I why agree. I stay clear of this because I do have uh, very, very strong feelings. I went through, um, one of the worst depressions of my life immediately after the election, because something else happened at that at that same time within the 24 hour period that changed my life forever. Different different podcast, um, but when it comes to being online, 
and and being an author, being a public figure, I've uh, mm-hmm. again and again encountered the advice of don't get political, don't divide your audience. And I understand, I see the wisdom in that, but at the same time, I see you, um, not every day, uh, you've got a great social media presence where you know, you're, you've been doing a countdown to the release of Angel Thieves, you've been providing great background uh, information that you researched, uh, the people that, that enjoy the book and then follow up and learn more about the things you talk about. Uh, but then when something comes up that I don't think should be, um, I, I don't understand that the folks that are on the side of pro kids in cages. I don't understand that argument. Uh, for me, yeah, if you're still a member of the Republican Party, post kids in cages, what are you doing? But that's yeah. that's really political. Um, so we want to speak out against this. We want to say, no, this is wrong. This should not be happening in my country. And I don't, I'm not on board with this. It's not okay. Um, and you want to speak out. On the other hand, I, I wonder sometimes like if Donald Trump at this point hasn't convinced you that he's a terrible person by his own actions, what could I, the middle grade ninja, possibly say to you <laughs> that would convince you that he's a bad person? And, and then I wonder if I'm just attracting the wrong sort of attention. What are your thoughts on on what an author should do in our current political situation? It's it's such a good question. And I think every every author grapples with it. You know, I mean, I think we all do. Um, we don't want to offend anybody in our audience, you know, I mean, we, I, I mean, I want the, you know, young MAGA hat wearing kids to read my stories. You know, I, I don't want to offend them. That's what most needs but, to read it. But at the same time, um, you know, and up until Trump won, I, I really tried to keep my, my politics basically to myself, although I've never made a secret of my uh, liberal and progressive leanings. I mean, that, that has just never been, I've never hidden that from anybody. I just, you know, for years just didn't make a big deal out of it. Although, you know, I did write a picture book biography of Lady Bird Johnson. So I think it's, you know, that might have given a clue um, and of course, my my friends and family know where I stand. But um, but I, you know, Trump changed everything for me. It's like I I just you know I I feel I have to be honest and um, you know try to be I, you know to resist as much as possible. To you know, for a long time, I had a picture of me with my friends at the Women's March. You know, the day after his inauguration. Did on you my have face. your uh, kitty Island? Yes, on my on my Facebook page. I mean, I just, I'm, I'm, I just refuse to be intimidated by him or his followers. And, um, and I think there's a lot of intimidation going on and, you know, they might say the same thing, you know, that we're doing the same to them. And, and that's, 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 uh, you know, a, a possible, um, I definitely have family members that I keep at arm's length and they keep me at arm's length. So it's a trade out. Um, but, you know, I mean, we, I don't think we can stand by. And I, it's been one of the most frustrating things that people in a position of doing something about Trump are idly standing by. And that is so frustrating to me. You know, he, over the weekend, he tweeted, he, he sent out 52 tweets, you know, and just managed to, um, to you know, insult and, uh, you know, put down and make accusations that were crazy all over the place all weekend long. I mean, that's nuts, you know? Uh, I mean, what, who does that? 52 tweets? And I, I mean, I, I don't, 
I'd have to give up eating and sleeping to come up with that much. But, um, <laughs> You're not trying to, to run a country. <laughs> yeah, right, 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 right. So so it really is a hard one. You know, I, like I said, I don't want to offend anybody. But I do feel, you know, what, what are we doing with our time in our life if we don't stand up for what we believe? You know, what are we saying to kids, even if, even if they believe something different from us? Um, if we don't, you know, if we don't serve as, as role models, I don't, I don't know the, and of course, you know, it's easy. It's kind of easy for me to say this because I'm, you know, an older and um, I'm not just embarking on my career and, and, you know, this, it, who knows how much longer I'll get to do this, but um, you know, I think it's important to take a stand and to, and to, and to, and to shine a light on the darkness. I mean, that's that's kind of like my motto, you know, that I feel like my responsibility is to shine a light on darkness and um, certainly separating children from their families is dark. There is no light in that regard. And and so, I, you know, I think even if it's via a story that's set in 1846, um, you know, the fact that we're still doing it is heartbreaking. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I feel I, we'll, we'll 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 move on to talk about religion and be less divisive. Um, but uh, I I did feel part part of the part of what was I don't know, I'm, I'm 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 dumb I guess but I I remember being so hopeful uh, I actively campaigned for Barack Obama and when he won I was like oh, a new country in eight years of. I was kind so of proud. pulling back yeah. a little bit as uh, some of the shine wore off, and that uh, you're, you're killing kids yeah. with drones. That's it's it's a little bit less hope and change than than what I was hoping for. But still, right. I felt like this is a safer country than it's ever been. It's it's okay now to be out, and 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 to feel at home a little bit more than than maybe I had before. And then right. this came along. Where do I live? Right. It was I'm almost, in Indiana, bright red, where we've got Trump sign. We had Trump signs all around. Am I just surrounded by the, the worst possible people? <laughs> well, I don't think I don't think all Trump supporters are are horrible people. I, I mean, I really don't. I mean, I, I know that they had their reasons um, for, for supporting him. Um, I You know, I I just I remember when Obama was was uh, elected, I just felt so proud of our country, you know, because I really didn't believe in my lifetime that I would see a black president. I really just I mean, I was hopeful, but I had I really never believed it. And so that was such a proud moment when I just felt fully American, you know, like being able to say that this is what is possible for America, that it really is true, that no matter who you are, you can be the president of the United States. And then, you know, Trump kind of made that whole old saying, no matter who you are, you can be the president into something totally, <laughs> totally different, you know, that you could be completely inept, corrupt, you know, incurious, all of that. And lazy and you know and be president i mean it's kind of like it was like the polar opposites in so many ways um so i'm hoping that you know that the whole thing between the two is like a crisis moment for us to see you know that not everything is as it looks you know not everything um appears to be what it is and and so 
And certainly one of the things that Trump has inspired is the, you know, outing of white supremacy. And I mean, that was always there, but it was kind of hidden in the sh shadows. It was sort of pushed aside and people were like, oh, that's just a, you know, that's an anomaly that doesn't really happen here. Well, you know, anybody who has followed the uh, Southern uh, Poverty Law Center knows that, um, that those groups have been here all along. Um, those white supremacists, neo-Nazis and all of that. Um, they've been here all along. And one thing, if you can say anything positive about Trump is that he exposed them. You know, they came out of the shadows. So, um, so yeah, no, I hope those folks keep their MAGA bumper stickers and their, their hats on for as long as possible. I don't know who they are. We can no longer deny their existence. I mean, and I think there was some of that. You know, I think there was some of like, oh, no, you know, I mean, it's like I said earlier, I think we have to shine lights. I think we have to tell the truth. You know, it's not okay to continue to turn, you know, here in Texas to, to continue to pretend that slavery wasn't a driving force in the war against Mexico. I mean, that's just, that's, the proof is there. You know, it was, it, it's, it's written into the constitution of the Republic of Texas, slavery is. And so, um, you know, it's, and it was, you know, it was a very stern article eight of the Texas constitution clearly, clearly state, you know, talks about slavery and its legality and how, you know, it was, it was actually illegal to be black and free. <laughs> Those two didn't, you know, you, you might be freed by somebody, but that didn't make you free, not according to the law. So, um, so, you know, I mean, I think it makes it more important than ever to tell those stories and to, sh you know, to show that, you know, we have this legacy and now Trump has shown a light on it and let's deal with it. You know, that's, that's my, that's my big hope for the future. And I think we can, I mean, I think it's in us as Americans to do that. And, um, you know, and, and, and even boiling it down to little Zora, the little ocelot, you know, the truth is, um, when I was researching her, I figured she would come from the Laguna Atascosa, which is right along the border uh, of Texas and Mexico. And there are only about 50 ocelots down there. And if they put that wall through there, they'll seriously impact that population because they freely move from uh, Texas to Mexico. So it'll be a travesty for them. And so it's not just, it's not just uh, us. It's not just people that are impacted. It's our, it's the wildlife, it's the butterflies. It's, you know, it's our very souls, I think. And, you know, I think people are, uh, you know, illuminated by the way that they treat uh, the natural world. I think we see something about that. And that wall is so antithetical to the environment you know, not just the, uh, what it symbolizes, but, but just, you know, the, the, the physical impact it'll make on the environment will be, will be, uh, big. Not, yeah, hopefully it will never be built, but we'll see. <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There are lots of things I said would never happen that have, have come to pass. So we'll I know. See. Oh, I know. Gosh. Yeah. I know. Yeah. But I do, I do remain hopeful because I do think. Um, in fact, uh, let me quote the uh, end of your book here. Your your author's note. I wanted to point out. Uh, apologies in advance for the language, uh, gentle listeners. Uh, but 
you wrote in your uh, author note here at the back of Angel Thieves, I also believe that if the world is to be saved, it'll be because young people join together and get the rest of us to stop being asshats, which I think is, <laughs> couldn't, couldn't have put a finer point on that. I love that word. I love asshats. I got that word from, I got that word from Cynthia Lydic Smith. I give her total credit for that word. <laughs> Well, here we are. We made it uh, 14 episodes of the Middle Grade Ninja Podcast with, with no profanity. And episode 15, Kathy, I felt we can't <laughs> we can't can't make it all the way through. Real, real quick question about language, and then we'll we'll talk about religion, because uh, I do want to ask you about uh, religion in your religiously themed book. Um, but you you're, you're using profanity, um, not not overusing it, but you are using it where it's appropriate throughout Angel Thieves, which of course is a departure from your earlier work. Mm -hmm. uh, and I wondered, something that I'm big on um, uh, is if you're gonna use profanity, you need to use it early for the readers that might not might not uh, be comfortable with that so they know that it's coming. And right. you've got an F-bomb, I think on page eight, very <laughs> the first chapter, uh, and you've got you've got it in a scene where Cade and, and his father are stealing an angel, um, a stone angel, and they're they're carrying it. And he starts to drop it a little bit, and there are a lot of profane words that could have gone there in place of an f bomb. And so my question when I saw that was, is that you warning uh, readers of the the underneath and the keeper and, and, and all of your other works that this is a um, different kind of story? I I can't say that I intentionally put it there that early to you know to as a warning. Um, but now that you say it, it, it works, I guess. Um, it does serve as a warning, but, but, you know, I just, you know, the more I thought about Cade, uh, the more I thought that'd be the kind of language he would use, you know, as a high school kid. Um, I having raised two, two boys, I think, uh, yeah, they would say that, <laughs> you know, at the age of 16, I'm pretty sure they did say it at the age of 16. So, um, so yeah. Yeah. I also like the idea that he and his father are stealing an angel from a cemetery, grave robbing. Right. My concern is the profanity. Oh, yeah, exactly. Do you yeah. use nice words while you while you rob from the dead? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't overuse it. I don't think, but um, no, I yeah. don't think so either. And I, mm -hmm. uh, I honestly, I, I, I would like to see you use it more. <laughs> uh, it was a nice moment that uh, that made that took me back a little bit because I had uh, put you a little bit in a box, and I think that it's just. Uh, we do this with authors that we admire. Um, sure. Well, you're the you're the picture book, nice uh, animal story yeah. uh, person, which which of course is not entirely true because you were writing about deeper themes and darker things all along, uh, which is why you got an angry letter from the the librarian back for the underneath. Yeah. Uh, but then I read that I'm like, oh, well, of course, Kathy Appel is a fully three dimensional person uh, <laughs> existing in the world, and, and she could write about any type of subject. I don't know that you've written erotica under a pen. But it's certainly not out of the question that if you <laughs> so wanted to do, you probably could. No, I'll just I'll just put that rumor to bed right now. <laughs> that's not that's not. <laughs> Is that a rumor we're starting? Yeah, exactly. Kathy Appel so. writes erotica. <laughs> it's it's furry, it. furry themed erotica. Uh, uh, no. but, um, All right, well, let's uh, let's talk about religion. <laughs> um, why not? Because you, uh, I'm sorry. No, I said, why not? <laughs> sure, we're 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 already deep in the weeds, so we've we've kicked <laughs> off some some listeners. Like I have to think that anybody that's watching or listening to this is engaged in reading and writing, which I like to think clears out a lot of the uh, Trump supporters right away. Um, but let's talk about. Uh, this book is religiously themed and it's a little bit, there's fantasy elements, but it's a little bit ambiguous. 
uh, without spoiling about um, where you stand religiously. And I know you've said that you are not a religious person, but you are a person of faith. What does that mean? Well, you know, I, I, I do believe in a higher power. Um, and I, I have a lot of faith when it comes to certain things, you know, I feel like, I feel, feel like I, you have to have, you know, for myself, I have to have faith when I sit down to write, for example, that the story is going to show up, those sorts of things. Um, I have faith in a, in a generous universe, you know, that, that the universe all, overall is good. I, I have faith in goodness. Um, you know, I think it will, it will outshine and overcome the darkness. So, so I, that's kind of abstract, I think, but, um, but that's, you know, that, that's where it lays. I don't hew to a, a particular dogma or creed or anything like that. I do belong to a church. I, I belong to the Unitarian Universalist Church. So, um, so that's my, you know, that's my spiritual home or religious home. You could call it my religious home if you wanted, but, um, but here in the South, you know, religion is just a part of the fabric of the South. And, and even though Houston is kind of a, you know, this, my area of the South is more Southwest. It's sort of, it's not that it's not like the deep South of Alabama or Mississippi, you know, it's not, it's not like that, but we definitely, even here in my town have mega churches, you know, mega Baptist churches, um, huge Methodist churches, you know, so big, big Christian, uh, you know, evangelistic churches. We've got those here and, and lots of kids, you know, are involved in youth groups and, and whatnot. And so, but um, for me, you know, when I was thinking about how the role of religion in my, in my story, and trust me, I, I also had a reader for the theological part of this story because, you know, because I'm not an expert in Christian uh, theology or any other theology for that matter. But, um, but one thing I do know is that in the, uh, in, in pre-Civil War and during the Civil War, the churches were really involved in the abolitionist movement. You know, the, a lot of churches uh, were served as underground railroad stations uh, throughout the throughout the South, and so the churches were a vital part of that, um, um, you know, of that that movement uh, early on. And so, so I know that you know, I mean, it's it's easy to condemn a church, I think, um, but uh, and and also one of the things that interested me, especially when it came to Soleil, my character Soleil, is that. Um, so often when we're writing about kids who are on a spiritual journey, um, they have a reckoning, you know, they have a, a deep night of the soul kind of reckoning. Um, and they either leave their, their church behind or they cling more tightly to it. And, and I didn't want to have a faith journey. You know, I wanted to, to portray a, a girl who is involved with her church and, um, but who isn't necessarily questioning it, um, you know, because I don't think every, every faith journey has to be bogged down by questions of faith. So, um, so, and also I wanted to present a church, you know, a, a well-established church that was doing social justice work. And there's a lot of, there are tons of churches that are doing great 
social justice work. Um, you know, there are a lot of churches, say in Houston, for example, that are still harboring refugees from her, the hurricane, Hurricane Harvey, two years later. And um, so they're doing really wonderful, um, you know, work in that regard. And, and not all of them are evangelistic. And I wanted, I did want to show a church and a religious girl who were not necessarily pigeonholed. And so I think we do a lot of that, you know, we pigeonhole our characters and, and our kids and everybody else for that matter. And so um, it was really important to me to, 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 but it, you know, I also, I, I, David Bowles recently, he's a fellow author, recently did a Twitter stream where he, you know, he was questioning why, why do so many uh, stories for kids leave the re leave religion out when so many kids are involved in religion, when it's part of their life, you know, it doesn't show up really in, in their books. And so, um, so I was glad he asked that question because I do think, you know, if you're going to have a contemporary story with teenagers, at least one of them is going to be practicing a religion of some sort. And so, um, so I, you know, I did want to shine a light on that church, you know, on a, a church that is doing social justice work. It has a history of social justice work and what a character who is part of that congregation uh, look like in the present, you know, in the past, but also in the present day. It's sort of like a, you know, showing, shining a light on her ancestors to help explain who she is even though they may not be related, but they're part of her faith family, her religious family. So, yeah, <laughs> sounds kind of convoluted, but there you have it. <laughs> Life is convoluted. And, and so is a lot of, uh, uh, so are a lot of the intersecting themes within uh, Angel Thieves, which is something that really, uh, uh, stood out uh, to me, and we're, I'm going off script again, so I'm going to gush just a little bit. Uh, but um, it's so uh, diverse in in the amount of perspectives that you bring in, and the the different subjects that come up, and yet they're all related. They all come back to somebody's an angel, somebody's a thief. You can see that theme coming up again and again throughout. And I, I thought you tied everything together masterfully there by the end, which I shan't spoil. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. We are uh, running out of time, tragically, and I have just infinite questions uh, that, that uh, I could ask you, and I'm, I appreciate you being so generous with your time today. Um, so why don't I ask you this kind of catch-all question here? Okay. Um, and this is something that I, I like to ask everybody. What is the one piece of advice that you wish someone had given to you when you started your writing career that maybe would have made a big difference? Oh, gosh. Um, I think. Uh... Well, something I, I tell my students and I try to remember for myself is to be brave, you know, be brave, go there. You know, when you when you see a, a path that you think you shouldn't be on, that's probably the one you need to take. So just be brave, you know, tell your story. So, yep. Where uh, can esteemed audience find more about uh, you and your books online? Yeah, I have a website. Um, you know, just www.kathyappelt.com. I also have a really cool Pinterest page for Angel Thieves uh, specifically. And it's just, you know, you just go to Pinterest and type my name in. It should get you there. And also Angel Thieves. And it's got all of my resources, all of the books and the websites and the, um, 
you know, photos and stuff like that, that I used in the, in, uh, or a lot of them that I used in my research. Um, not everything, obviously, but, um, but so it's, it's got, you know, if you're interested in some of the, some of the things I was reading and some of the things I was looking at, um, you know, during the writing of the book, it's all there on my Pinterest page. So, yeah. So and of yeah. course you're uh, on Twitter. What's your Twitter handle? It's just K Appelt, K Appelt. Yeah. And then I have Instagram and Instagram is Kathy five cats. It's so it's K A T H I five cats. So that's out of date now. There's, there's it one is. more. Since I then. should have six, but it's, it's stuck at Kathy five cats. <laughs> so well, if you I'm, change it now and you need to update it to seven and, and I have an author page. <laughs> I, have a, I have a Facebook author. I mean, I've got, I, you know, I'm, I'm easy to find on social media. So, yeah. So I have an author page and I have a Facebook and a, and a personal page too. So I'm, I'm easy. <laughs> Honestly, if you're watching or you're listening to this and you like middle grade fiction and young adult fiction and you don't know who Kathy Appelt is, you, you don't like young adult or middle grade fiction. Oh, thank you for saying that. I am honored that you took the time to talk with us today. This has been just an absolute wonderful episode. Uh, I, I feel like I learned a lot, and this is one that I'm going to go back and I'm going to be re-listening to multiple times to, to remember all the, the wonderful bits of advice that you gave. So I really appreciate you taking the, the time to be here today. Um, a quick reminder to esteemed audience, uh, the next couple of weeks, there will not be any new episodes, but come April, we'll be started after my son's spring break, we'll be uh, back up and running uh, with multiple episodes. Uh, keep up with the show at middlegradeninja.com. Don't forget to download your free copy, your ebook copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, or just go ahead and buy the paperback. It's a great book. You'll enjoy it. Um, as always, find out more about me at middlegradeninja.com. Read uh, Kathy Appelt's original seven-question interview, as well as Mr. Uh, M.T. Anderson. Uh, and uh, Kathy, I've been asking our guests to sign us off with our sign-off phrase, which is hi-ya and what have you. When you sign us off, Hi, yeah, and what have you? <laughs> Perfect. That was beautiful. <laughs>